Welcome to or welcome back to the Journey Through Life podcast. I'm Justin Barton and the host of this show. I'm very grateful to have you as a listener today. Um, today and for the next 12 weeks, there will be no mention of advertisers or partners or Facebook asks, etc. before this show or any of the next 12 weeks. If you want to learn of them and how to support this podcast, please listen all the way to the end. That information will be there. So I find the next 12 weeks of this show to be too important to sully it with those types of things beforehand. So if you find this show to be of value as you listen today or to any of our other episodes, past, present, or future, and you have the name or image of a friend or family member pop into your mind, please share that episode with them. I am a firm believer that there is a reason for random thoughts that just pop into our minds. And if we act on them, we or someone else can be greatly strengthened and blessed by those actions. Now, I'm really excited to kick off the year 2020 with a very special 12-week series of the Journey Through Life podcast. This series is called Journey in Recovery. I've interviewed many different people from many different locations and lots of different backgrounds on one of each of the 12 steps of recovery as laid out originally in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, before you shut this off and say, this doesn't apply to me, I'm asking you to please give it a shot. Whether you or I are an actual addict or not, I know that we all, as human beings, have weaknesses in our lives. Weaknesses that we may be the only one that knows about them, but we really wish we could move past them. But try as we will, we have not been able to leave them behind. I have come to learn that learning of and applying the 12 steps of recovery can and will be beneficial to any human being who goes into it with real intent and applies the principles of these steps into their lives, and they will be moved, able to move through any addiction, any habit, any self-destructive or unwanted behavior. This can include full-blown drug and alcohol addiction, or something as seemingly dumb, but just as gripping as putting lip balm on compulsively or popping one's knuckles. This week, being week one, we will be talking about step one of this 12 steps. I will be interviewing a woman who is the spouse of an alcoholic. Her story, even though she is not seemingly the one with the problem, is powerful. So, you may not be an addict yourself, but chances are that you are married to one, a parent to one, a child to one, or a co-worker to one. This episode will, if you allow it, give you amazing tools so that your life can become more manageable, even if your loved one does or does not seek help for his or her addiction. You may be introduced to concepts that you have never before considered, or may even seem contradictory to what you have considered truth for perhaps your whole life, but these concepts are shared as honestly and openly as possible, using real experiences that cannot be denied as being true. As some quick background information, step one of Alcoholics Anonymous reads, quote, We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. End quote. Now, kick back or hit the road or do house or yard work or whatever you do while listening to podcasts and be ready to learn and feel and gain insights like you may have never considered before. Here we go with Shannon. <music> So, um, Shannon, uh, please introduce yourself as you would as if you were sitting in a in a group or in a recovery group setting. 
Um, hello, my name is Shannon, and um, I am the wife of an alcoholic addict. Hi, Shannon. Hi. Yeah, so it's good. I, I'm grateful that uh, that you're sitting down here with me and having this conversation. I'm I'm excited about this conversation as well as all the others that uh, that we're putting together here for each of the twelve steps over the next. Know, the 12 weeks, first 12 weeks of 2020. So Shannon, tell me a little bit about what brought you to the steps of recovery. Crisis, crisis that was unmanageable for me. Um, and I, I went kind of unwillingly in the beginning. Um, it took me a while to except that I couldn't fix what was happening in my life myself. Um, so some spouses and family members of people who were actually in my husband's process of getting help um, through AA actually reached out to me multiple, multiple times before I accepted any help and mm. eventually gave in. So tell me a little bit about that crisis and the unmanageability, the things that were going on around you that uh, that eventually brought you to, quote unquote, give in. My husband had been sober for a year. He was sober when we met um, and sober for years. I found out later that his sobriety didn't last as long as I thought it did, but it became crisis situation November of 2015, I just, I, I kept thinking I could fix it. Like I took all the alcohol and put it all in a big bin and like duct taped it up. I remember, mm -hmm. oh, I listened back to myself how crazy that was, but mm -hmm. um, duct taped it all up and just hid it out in the garage and thought, well, it's not, a, you know, it's not in the pantry anymore. It's not above the refrigerator anymore. So he's not going to feel tempted to, to want to drink. I did things like that. And then finally I threw it away and then I just kept taking, I kept taking things away, but in the process, making myself more crazy, thinking I could fix it myself. Hmm. And you learned from that process of taking things away, setting up safeguards or things that you thought were safeguards. Initially you thought, Hey, this will fix my husband because he won't be as tempted to do these things. That was kind of your thought process or. Absolutely. If I take it away, if it's not available in our home, then he won't drink. Hmm. And how well did that work? Um, that didn't, I think that almost fueled the fire. Hmm. It made it, I don't know. It didn't work at all. So Let's talk a little bit about, you know, maintaining anonymity with everybody else that, that maybe you've had and talked to about somewhat similar situations. H have you ever heard somebody who's in your situation, maybe a spouse of an addict, say that setting up these safeguards or, or whatever worked for them? No, <laughs> no. And nobody's ever asked that question, Justin. Huh. And it like reflecting and... <laughs> It sounds ridiculous to hear you say that. Like, no, because it doesn't work. It does not work. But you you definitely believed that it would work when you were going through that process, right? 
Oh, absolutely. Because I had no idea that my life was unmanageable because of alcohol. And, and then when I was first introduced to um, Al-Anon and went to that first meeting, I left there even more ticked off because I went in and they read the 12 steps and I was like, my life is not unmanageable because of alcohol. I can go home and have a glass of wine and wake up and go to work and like not hurt anybody or do. So I didn't understand. Yeah. So here's what step one reads from, from the big book. It reads, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. You just mentioned that you were really mad when, when you heard that after they read the steps the first time you were there. Right. Um, because it wasn't your life that was unmanageable because of alcohol. It was your, it was your loved one's life. Right. Right. So how did you finally come to the point where you're like, you know what? These things affect me too. And it's my problem. You know, how did that realization happen in your life? It took a long time. I kept going back to meetings because I was desperate and didn't have the energy to tell people no or like to, mm. to argue against it anymore. And um, the one thing that I do remember that stuck with me at that first meeting was take what you like um, and leave the rest. So once I was able to get like sort through my emotions mm-hmm. um, about that meeting, I felt like it, it, honestly, I felt like it had been a waste of time and I don't want to listen to everybody else's problems. I've got my own problems. That helped me keep going back The take what you like and leave the rest. So, so tell me, what was it that you liked from that first meeting that 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 you initially held on to and and were were able to go go forward from there? This is oh well, it's honest. Um, but again, looking back, reflecting and listening to the the growth that you can have in a twelve step program, I'm kind of humiliated at myself for this, but um, I went to that meeting because it was at the same time that there was an AA meeting at the same facility. And I thought my husband was in recovery and we were just, we were going to do this together. And I would, I just did it to go with him begrudgingly because that's what everybody said I had to do. And I just went because my husband was in an AA meeting on the other side of the church property. So it's kind of a the thing you liked that you took from it was that you were there at the same time as your husband and you figured, hey, if if I'm here and he's here at the same time, we're both in a state. I'm supporting him. I'm supporting him. And that was still me early on thinking like, I, I'm helping him. I'm fixing him. I'm doing all of this. And I never, at that point in time, like looking, I remember I got a sponsor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was annoyed at that because I was like, I don't, like, I don't have time for this, you know, like I just don't have time for this, but, um, she had me get a workbook and I remember going, there's, um, an Al-Anon, I don't know if it's a store, what you would call it in Mesa. And, um, it's like never open. It's only open like <laughs> for like three hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon on certain days of the week. I felt like at that time, 
but again, I was in crisis and like desperate, but Mm -hmm. um, that's one thing I will say that helped me learn to like and love the steps and the program was the literature that I could, that I could go. I, I chose things to read and I read them on my own time in my own home. And that helped me. Like I would, you know, I read through, I think it was called the dilemma of the alcoholic marriage or something Mm. like that. I read through that in like a day. And then I read it four more times, probably in the next, you know, month. Wow. So, so we'll come back to some of those reading materials here. I want to dig a little bit more into um, your own awakening that you were powerless in the situation and your life had become unmanageable. So, so this book, it's called step into action. It's a really cool book that I use um, a lot in, in the steps in step one, the first, the first paragraph reads this step one was a flat admission of defeat. We were beaten, we said, and we can't stop doing what makes us sick. Our addiction or our situation was killing us. I mean, does that does that kind of ring true to you at all in your own? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then with that came this word in Al-Anon, co- codependence. Yes. I worked through a lot of anger in my first step. <laughs> Because I felt like I was told my life was unmanageable because of alcohol, but I, but, but to me, that was like, this isn't about me. Um, And then people are talking about codependence because I just kept trying to help my husband. And I guess I should say, say that I, and I, I think a lot of people do this, but I had to go back to step one multiple times over like a 15 to 18 month period of time, like multiple, multiple times. Hmm. Um, and I don't know that I ever really believed it or accepted it, um, for probably the first 10 months. Hmm. Like I just was going through the motions. So, so, so for the first 10 months, you're going through the motions. Do you remember what was said or what realization you had that made it so, Hey, uh, I'm not just going through the motions anymore. I am finally having a a flat admission of defeat (laughs) to this. So I think for me, um, it got getting to, I don't want to say I pretended like I didn't know at the time that I was pretending or not really accepting, but it got, it, it took me getting to the point, um, later in the steps where, that um, I turned my will and my and my power over to God. That for me helped me realize working through that step wasn't wasn't a challenge for me. But that step helped me realize step one mm. or accept step one. Like, yeah, my life is unmanageable and I don't have control of it because God's in control. And if I keep trying to force my will, how can step one work? Yeah. Can't, it can't for me. Hmm. I like that because that step three, um, turning your life and your will over to the care of your higher power to God, um, is totally the admission that I can't do it on my own. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's putting that into practice, actually. It's putting that admission of I can't do it on, on my own into practice. So the term codependent, de- define that for me and for those who are listening. Um, I don't, I, I can't define that because I still struggle with that. I, I really do. I feel like it's this bound, there's this, I think about like, you know, if you have a diagram of like two circles that overlap in the middle. Um, so how can you have a marriage and not have some level of codependence? And I'm sure there's a phenomenal answer. And I sat through, I don't know how many counseling sessions and how many meetings talking about it. And I'm a little bit stubborn. Mm-hmm. So I just refuse to accept somebody else's definition of it. Um, somebody did explain to me one time um, that made the most sense to me was, can you function and do everything in your life that you need to do without your spouse? And I, my immediate response was, well, yeah, like, of course I can, but not, it's a fine line for me, not being codependent. Um, and, and that's something that I probably, I think I will always struggle with that, the codependent thing. Um, so the, I think the reason I really struggle with the whole codependence thing is I got married and I believe in wedding vows and like in sickness and in health and, and all, all these different things. And I, and I know that there are times that my husband, like I lean on my husband and by somebody's definition, I'm codependent with, you know, and, and roles are reversed at times because I need, I need him. Um, so again, turning my will over to God, like turning my will over to God helped me with the codependence factor also. Like it, God helped me or my higher power helped me to learn to focus on myself and not worry about what my husband was doing 20 hours a day. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a minute. You know, there's a a phrase that I hear all the time in recovery uh, situations, and I, I've heard it in several different ways. You know, it's either sweeping my own side of the street, cleaning oh, my own, own room, lane. yeah, staying in my own lane and not worrying yeah. about the other people on the other side of the street or in the other lane. So, so tell me about that, what that means to you. Oh, that's another struggle every day. I stay in my lane on the struggle bus because... So in my journey with addiction and my experiences, a lot, there's been a lot of hurt and trust has been broken over and over and over and over again, over years. Um, so again, me just being difficult, like how can I stay in my lane and only like worry about my side of the street or, and not check the phone records to see that he's not talking to somebody else. Or, I mean, I could, I've been, I've been crazy because of the, of this, you know, this disease, but, um, so that's what stay in my lane means to me. It means like a constant struggle of just focus on myself and, and, turning my will and my power over to my higher power. I mean, it always comes back to that. All of my answers keep coming back to that, but that's what this means for, I mean, that's how I work all of the steps. Yeah. You know, in my own experience um, with addiction, my wake up call 
was facilitated by my wife. Mm -hmm. She had uh, already been in um, spouse and family support type groups for several years, Mm -hmm. um, dealing with my own stupidity and, you know, addictive behaviors. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and she one day came to me and she said, Hey, you know, Justin, I'm good. My relationship with God is good. If at the end of this life, I'm hanging out with God and you're not hanging out with me, I'll be sad, but I'm okay with that. I'm good. And it was kind of this slap upside the head, like, oh, I feel expendable, Mm -hmm. even though I knew that, you know, that's not what she was saying, but that's what I felt. And that wasn't my motivation to get into recovery, Mm -hmm. but it was definitely a wake up call. It was like, hmm, my wife has moved on. Whether physically or not, she's moved on emotionally, spiritually, whatever it is, mentally, mm-hmm. and she's leaving me behind. And that was kind of a wake-up call. Does that relate? And do, do you see anything like that in your own life? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes. So many times over. Like I said, I've had to go back to step one, and who knows? Maybe I will have to again. I don't know. But um multiple times. And I mean, there's been times that I thought that I was on the right path and like good, that codependence word keeps coming back in my head, but um, have to go back to that. My loved one ended up in jail for a week because of the choices he made and continued to make. And um, the codependent person that I am and the fixer that I am may or may not have done everything in my power to get him into jail because at that point it was to save his life. Mm. It was pretty bad at the end. So there was a, a phone call and I, yeah, we did get there. Um, I got to a point when the phone rang that I, it was the first time that I was okay, not going to get him, not going to, to save him. And just, I knew that I was going to be okay. Mm. Um, and, and so did he. Wow. Um, so I think, I think that that was as helpful for myself and our marriage and my husband, like all, all it, all at once and just this one conversation and people have asked me over the years, well, how did you know? There's just that conversation. It was a clarity conversation. It wasn't a conversation um, driven by addiction. Hmm. It was a higher power was facilitating that conversation for sure. Hmm. So when you had that conversation facilitated by the higher power how did you prepare for it I was not it just happened I was not prepared at all I mean I knew that he would call eventually from I mean I assumed he would call Mm -hmm. eventually um but when he called everything there was just this oh it was my it was my one of my aha moments with my higher power that I so struggled to like and willed to happen um, and felt like they weren't happening. They weren't happening. They weren't happening. And that was just one of my aha moments that I was not 
was not prepared for. That was one of my first realizations that turning my my will over to God could lead to good things. Like at that point, had you already been attending meetings or was this before you started attending meetings? Yeah, I was attending meetings. But like turning my life over to God was never, was never like a, was, I don't, that's the least of my challenges working the steps. And I know that for most, a lot of people that that's not the case, but, but I never had any, like, I don't want to say that I had lost hope, but, Mm -hmm. but like turning my life over to God and just like letting things be and staying in my lane and just worrying about myself and taking care of our children was, it was just okay. It was just putting one foot in front of the other and keep going, keep going, keep going. That conversation was the first God is, I mean, not to say that God is not good when things aren't going good, but that was Mm -hmm. my first, like, this is, this is working. Like this works if you, if you work it moments. And I, and I hear that all the time. (laughs) This works if you work it. Oh, that's so so annoying. All those all those things are so annoying. Yeah. And, I, and but <laughs> are they true, or, or are the ones that that anyways you've found are true? Yeah, they are, and they're still annoying because now they're <laughs> annoying for a different reason because they're true. But it works if you work it. Like all those things. That, I mean, there are posters. You walk in some of these rooms, and there's just posters. Fill the <laughs> fill the room, and you're like, really, really. Really. It's so true though. It works if you work it and stay in your lane and find yourself and it, it all works, but it's all in, in God's time. Mm. So let's, let's kind of go back a little bit. You, you mentioned some books, one of the books you read, uh, I think it was the dilemma of the alcoholic marriage. Mm-hmm. Tell me some of the things you gained from that bit of literature and maybe others that have helped you as you've come through your own recovery uh, journey? Um, So what I loved the most about literature like that, for me versus sitting in meetings always, was I, it made me, like some of the things that you read, you're like, oh yeah, that's terrible. Oh yeah, like my life is not a lifetime. I mean, it could be a lifetime movie in that type of crisis, my life is a lifetime movie, but look, somebody else's like had a lifetime movie life here for a while. And, and they worked through it and there's, there's some logic behind it. And in those experiences versus this makes me sound like a horrid person, but sometimes in meetings, I struggle listening to people tell their sob stories. I just do. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes I just don't have it in me. Like I don't, that's selfishly sometimes. Um, that's not what I need from a meeting. Mm -hmm. So the literature helps tremendously. So what I'm gathering from some of the, the things that you mentioned as sob stories is kind of that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, the person sharing is kind of coming at it from a a victim point of view. Yes. Yes. And you know what? Um, all of these victims, um, we all as, as spouses or loved ones or whatever your relationship is, um, we all have our own role. Mm. And 
I don't know if responsibility is the word, but accountability, like we all play a role in the relationship we have with our loved ones who suffer from addiction or struggle with addiction. So I struggle with playing the victim card. Mm. So, so did you feel like a victim at first in this whole process? Did you feel like, Hey, I'm a total Mm -mm. victim in this. You you never Mm -mm. felt like a victim. So tell me how the heck you didn't feel like a victim. That's I, I think you're a rarity in that Shannon. Uh-huh. But how do you, how did you come through it? Not feeling like a victim? I think that it's just the way my brain, like am I, I'm a fixer. I'm a fixer. And I didn't take at least in the beginning towards the end, maybe I towards the end, I think probably did feel a little bit more like a victim, but the first probably I don't know, two or three crises. I was ticked off and like, why is this person broken and how am I going to fix him? Like that was my codependence. Yeah. And that was my um, denial and ignorance and not understanding why I needed to be part of a 12-step program. So I think that like, that's why I didn't have the victim thing. Like in my mind, all, all these meetings were supposed to be like, let's get in here and let's figure out how we're going to help these people, <laughs> not help myself mm. or, you know what I mean? Like, so ignorance is why, is why I didn't play victim. Interesting. Should you have played a victim? I probably should have done a what? lot of things. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So because most people, like I said earlier, most spouses of people, loved ones who suffer with addiction, mm-hmm. see themselves as a total victim. In the, Why did this initially. happen to me or how did this happen to exactly. me? Why me? Why me? Exactly. But you didn't feel that why me initially. Is that correct? Correct. But that also is a reflection of the level of, I, I guess, codependence. Like I was just like, nope, this is like, this is my husband and he is broken and we are going to fix him. And and that's even different than why me, but it isn't moving towards the solution. Right. You mentioned what I believe as the movement towards the solution earlier when you said we all have a role in the situation we're in. Mm-hmm. When when did you wake up to your role and what was is your role in your loved one's situation? I woke up to that um, sitting in a Starbucks inside of Barnes and Noble in Mesa, Hmm. working through this workbook, a spiral bound, just paper workbook that my sponsor wanted me to do, you know, work on like, Again, I did a lot of this. I tend to be a little bit like difficult in the sense of like, I'm just stubborn. Like I have my mind made up. I have conviction. This is how, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm doing it. And I'm going to get from A to Z and this is what I'm doing. And don't tell me otherwise. So I was just doing it to like appease my sponsor, like just going through the motions, doing what I was supposed to be doing and like zipping through these pages. And when she, when we sat down, she, she met me there later and she's reading them and she's like, but what about you? Like, what, what role do you play in your daily routine? 
with your spouse. And like it took somebody else reading over my answers. Like I, I was just truly that ignorant. I truly, mm. I needed somebody to like say to me, like shan't like almost like grab me by the shoulders and shake me. Like, <laughs> hello, you're part of this. Like you're, you're, you're part of this and you play a role in this, an active role, not a passive role, not like watching things go by. How do you respond to these situations and how far do you go to control the situation or manipulate the situation so that so that your spouse doesn't have an opportunity to even make the wrong choice or make the right choice or make so yeah hmm. that's- so when when she figured it figuratively grabbed you by the shoulders and shook you and said what is your part in this mm-hmm. and i think you may have alluded to it in this answer but tell me what what came clear to your mind hey this is my role in this situation oh my gosh i'm a controlling basket case mm. so that's what i realized like just let it go and that stay on your side of this you know get back to my side of the street and focus on myself and she gave me this bookmark that had like things that I was supposed to do every single day Um, that early on for me to stay in my lane and worry about myself and less about what he was doing, my spouse was doing. I had to really focus. Like I kept it in my visor um, in my car and at red lights, I would stop and read it, stop and read it, stop and read it over and over and over again. And literally Mm -hmm. another one of those sayings, like one foot in front of the other, a minute at a time, a day at a time. Mm -hmm literally that's what it was for me like i had to i had to start there and really just focus on myself and when i took the time to focus on myself the next conversation you know a couple weeks later when we revisited that my sponsor and myself then i understood how much of a role i actually had or have, I should say, mm-hmm. in all of this. Because, yeah, I mean, it was easy for me. No, I didn't necessarily feel like a victim. But I felt like I felt like I was the good one and he was the bad one. Mm. He's broken and needs fixed, but I'm fine. Mm. So, mm. so when you come to that, the, the other person... Someone else, everybody else is the bad guy. I'm the good guy. I'm the one who's got my crap together and know what I'm doing. I think that's one of the biggest lies there is ever in society. Of course. So, so tell, me, tell me how that affects you now. I mean, do you look at yourself now and say, dude, I'm the, I'm the worst person in the world. What, how do you see yourself now? Are you the good guy? Or are you the bad guy? Where are you? I'm a person who wakes up every day with the goal to be a jerkosaurus. Like that's my goal every day. I can't, I mean, I can kind of try to take my own inventory and remember not to take other people's inventory, which I struggle with that a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I, I, I don't feel like I say it all the time. I'm not insanely religious, like super, super religious. Um, I could do a better job. I, I feel confident in my relationship with God. I wake up every day and I try to be aware that I am faced with choices all day long. 
And I try to think before I act. And that's the effort that I make to at least not be a bad guy. And I don't always succeed. I don't. I mean, there are times I lay in bed at night and I'm like, man, like, I should have handled that differently. Or I'll reach out to somebody else. I've reached out to you even recently. And this is how I'm feeling. Please help me gain perspective. Like help me see this from another view and me being the stubborn jerk of source that I am, you know, you or the next person will say, well, you know, you have a valid point. I can understand why you feel that way. And I don't know if I just need that somebody to tell me it's okay to feel that way or it's in my mind, I'm right. And the other person is not, but then I'll end up changing my mind before I go to sleep and change my decision because, because it's me taking inventory, reflecting on my day and the choices I made. And can I undo or correct any of the things that I chose to do to be a jerkosaurus that day? Mm. And as you reflect on that and, and think, Hey, could I change something in the future? How do you, and this goes into future steps, not step one, Mm -hmm. but I want to touch on it. How do you go about making things that you've done wrong that you've, after you reflect on it, you go, Hmm, I could have and should have done things differently. How do you go about making those right? I, so it depends. I mean, every situation is different, but I do reach back out to somebody and say, Hey, you know, I reacted to that situation and I'm not proud of the way I reacted, but I would like to, or could we please, or will you accept my apology in this? Mm -hmm. But some people struggle with that. I don't struggle with anymore. I used to. I Mm. used to think that I was always right. Mm. I don't struggle with admitting that I'm wrong as much as I used to. And like, it makes me feel good selfishly to say out loud that I was wrong or I handled that wrong. And this is an opportunity for me to learn something about how to be a better human today. Mm. But that took me a long time. And it's not always 100% because sometimes I'm still a turd. And and you know what? I don't think it ever will be 100% for any of us. But I love that you're finding almost joy in realizing when you're wrong and admitting when you're wrong. I'm not at that point all the time either. Where, uh, in it's fact, hard. Just, yeah, just, it was just a couple of days, uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was sitting in a meeting and I was reading something and then I stopped and made a really snide remark that was meant to be joking, meant to be something funny. Mm-hmm. And I said it directing it at one person that was in the meeting. And as soon as I said it, I saw that person's eyes just kind of their countenance just fell like, Oh, that hurt. And then I went back to reading and I was like, I can't read this anymore. I have to mm-hmm. make amends right now. And mm-hmm. I stopped what I was doing right in the middle of it. And I said, Hey, I am so sorry about what I said right there. That was inappropriate. It was wrong. Mm-hmm. It wasn't done with mean intent, but obviously it came across that way. I hope you can forgive me. And, and, and we were good at that point, but I felt so good at immediately admitting my wrong in something there. That's like a lifting a weight. Yeah. And, and I become more sensitive imperfectly, absolutely imperfectly to times when I do offend others or say things that are just out of line because of the awareness that I'm 
learning through this path, this journey that I'm taking. You mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. So it's really cool. So if you are somewhere in somebody's house, if you're in the grocery store and and some, or just a friend who knows you and loves you approaches you and says, Hey, Shannon, I'm dealing with this. My spouse is, my son is, my daughter is, my parents are dealing mm-hmm. with this major issue that's just destroying their lives and my life now. Mm-hmm. What advice do you give that person? Oh, goodness. I can't believe I'm saying this. It works if you work it and just keep going back and take take what you like and leave the rest. Oh my goodness. But it's so true. And I would say find a program truly and get through it and, and make it work for you. Like for me, I still went to meetings, but again, I found that reading was more beneficial to me um, from like the day to day um, that one day at a time, there's just little messages in there that you just read literally one day at a time and try to kind of pray about that and focus on that message. Um, but stay involved. I would say it, to what degree is kind of up to you, um, but definitely stay involved, read and ask for help. And, and I think one of the hardest things it, at least for me in crisis was, I don't, in so many aspects of my life, I'm not a people pleaser, but then naturally the people who try to help you in a crisis are your, the people closest to you. Right. Mm -hmm. And you trust that they have the best intentions for you and want to keep you happy and healthy and safe and know that you're loved, but it's so hard to not do what the people who are quote unquote helping you or supporting you um, want you to do without disappointing them. And that was for me where I got so much stronger working a 12 step program because my family members, immediate and extended family members don't all work a 12 step program, but with, with my parents or my brother or whoever see their daughter or sister in pain naturally they want to protect you know and just mm-hmm. tell you what to do and here let me just kind of shelter you and bring you bring you down this path or you know we're mm-hmm. going to take care of you we're going to keep you safe but you need the 12 step program to figure out how to help yourself so mm-hmm. that you're not still dependent on your mom and your dad or your brother or your best friend or your cousin or, or whoever that might be. So I would say to that person, find a program and I will go to meetings with you until you find a meeting that you like, because they're not all the same. Hmm. Um, some of them you walk out ticked off that you feel like you wasted an hour and 20 minutes of your life, but you can read those cool th- sayings on the posters <laughs> all over the walls. I don't know. Or, you know, but when, once you do find hmm. a meeting that you like, or a few different meetings that you like, it just takes time. Put your time in and you will come out ahead. Yeah. Now, one thing you mentioned there, and um, I think we'll be wrapping this up before too long here, but uh, one thing you mentioned that I really resonated with me, Mm -hmm. you mentioned, hey, you know, your loved ones have your best interest in mind. They want what's best for you, Mm -hmm. but they may not be directing you in the right path. And one of the things that I really try to do in 
recovery meetings is if somebody asks me to sponsor them, mm-hmm. I'm not going to sponsor somebody who's my friend already or who is a family member already mm-hmm. because when I drop the hammer, if I have to, I don't want them to curl off and disappear and, and run away. Mm-hmm. And I think you kind of alluded to that. Tell me about your sponsor and your relationship with your sponsor. I mean, how did you choose a sponsor? I don't feel like I chose my sponsor. Hmm. I feel like my sponsor chose me. However, during, I mean, we had conversations about it. She was the spouse of her husband, led one of the AA meetings. Okay. And so we got involved with them. Like in the beginning, when I was just going to meetings, I was going to Al-Anon meetings because there was an AA meeting at the same facility at the same time. And we did some like social events with these people. I guess she chose me. I chose her. We came together based on just she was a person that I spent a lot of time with. And Mm. I know that she had been working the steps and been an active member in Al-Anon for years and years and years. And I just looked at her like, Oh, she's got, she's got it figured out. Hmm. How would you recommend that someone, or would you recommend that someone get a sponsor? Yes. Get a sponsor. And it's okay if it's not the right fit the first time the first match, I guess. But yes, a sponsor is really important to make you, for me, a sponsor was very important because like that example at the coffee shop, like I'm just, she's giving me this workbook and I'm like, okay, I'll fill out the questions in the workbook. But like a sponsor is holding you accountable and not necessarily in a negative manner, but a sponsor is making, this helps you delve a little bit deeper into topics and conversations and working through the steps. For me, it was just pure ignorance. Like I had no idea that I could really have any sort of role in everything wrong. Right. How would you define a sponsor? I mean, is, is a sponsor somebody who just has your best interest in mind or what, what, how, how would you define that? Every sponsor is different. And I've seen that through different people's situations, but I would define a a good sponsor, I feel like a good sponsor in the beginning, yeah, has your best interest in mind and wants you to be successful always. But a good sponsor would also kick you to the curb if you're not if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing and working the steps. Like you can't BS a BSer. Like you can't, you know, like you can't. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us have to go back to step one and rework steps time and time and time again because we tend to figure out ways to BS ourselves. Yeah. We can BS ourselves, but it's harder to BS a BS or a sponsor. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so let me, let me read one more step. This will be my closing question. I think step 12 reads, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics, to people suffering from addiction and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Mm -hmm. How do you practice your step 12 today? I don't practice it as as well. Like I'm, this is something that I'm like pretty critical of myself about. I'm not as involved 
as I think I could be or should be. But you're also not supposed to woulda, coulda, shoulda yourself. So a day at a time. But um, for me, it's I think back to that bookmark. Mm -hmm. And there's this one suggestion on the bookmark that I try to do every single day. Um, And I think it became a habit for me because in the beginning when it was stuck above my visor in my car and I was constantly needing like, I felt like I was looking at that thing every minute of the day. It's to just do one random like kind thing and not get caught. Mm. Like just be a decent, like do a decent thing and not get caught. That is so fulfilling like to do that every day and know that I I don't always feel like I'm giving back necessarily to other Al-Anon members, but I'm just trying my best not to be a jerkosaurus Mm. for that day. Like, and it doesn't have to be anything that takes like a lot of effort. Like when you get out of your car at the gas station and somebody's water bottle is on the ground and not in the trash can, pick it up and put it in the trash can. It doesn't take any more energy than it does to ignore it and then overthink the fact that you ignored the water bottle on the ground for the rest of the day and I should have picked it up. Okay. So Shannon, there will be people who listen to this podcast who are spouses of people who are struggling with addiction. Maybe they themselves are struggling with addiction. Maybe they're in denial and being like, hmm, maybe I have a problem that's not just a little problem, you know? Why don't you go ahead and take a second and invite those people to, to take the next step to figure things out? From my perspective, there is nothing to lose and only positive to gain from participating in a 12-step program. And you learn that at your first meeting. I mean, that's what kept me Oh, that's another thing they say, keep coming back. But that's another thing that kept me to to continue going back and to really struggle. I struggled, I did, to find a meeting that I liked is take what you want and leave the rest. And eventually the rest helps too. But I I would invite anybody to participate in um, any sort of 12-step program because you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain from it. Just truly help yourself become more aware of who you are and who you are capable of being. The beginning you talked about how you, your actions in trying to save your husband from himself Mm -hmm. probably fueled the fire at that time. Mm -hmm. Now, as you are continually working on cleaning your own side of the street, staying in your own lane, Mm -hmm. How are your actions for yourself helping your husband now? Hmm. I guess I feel like that's a question for my husband. I can tell you, I feel like it depends on the day. He might say, she's doing a great job. And other days he might be like, oh my gosh, this woman. So I feel like I treated my husband like a child, you know, like if you're a fixer or an enabler or a codependent person, um, like myself, you see what's wrong or you see somebody make a mistake and you go, Oh, well, they'll correct it. And then if they make the same mistake twice or similar mistakes over and over and over again, you just take that power away from them. Or so you think you are 
And you're like, I'll just do it myself. It's easier. I'll just do it myself and you're not going to fail. Failure is part of growth. So I would say, I don't want my husband to feel like I'm calling him a failure because honestly, he's grown up more in the last three years, almost this month is three years. Um, sober for him again. Like he started his own business and like, he's just phenomenal, but that's been hard for me to just be like, and Oh, Oh. And the biggest thing is for me is to not offer my opinion until he asks for it. Mm. That's hard. I struggle with that all day long, every day. Sometimes I bite the inside of my cheeks to keep my mouth shut and he knows he'll just look at me. What do you want to say, Shannon? So yeah, (laughs) the only positive things can come from staying in your lane. It's just really hard to practice that self-control. But, but if you really focus on yourself, I don't know, you find there's a lot more interesting stuff you can do for yourself than worrying about other people sometimes and taking Mm. their inventory, you know? Yeah. So allowing the loved one the opportunity to fail on their own choice is a pretty powerful thing. Yeah. And figure it out. Mm -hmm. Like, so people would tell me, oh, he's always got such a soft landing. He doesn't get to, he never hits rock bottom with you in his life. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, this is rock bottom. Our life is in shambles. This is rock bottom. If this is rock bottom, I don't know what is. Right. Well, everything in God's time, because it is challenging, but if you turn your will over to your higher power, it is way more doable than you might imagine. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you, Justin. So there you have it. If you have felt something in your heart or mind that is motivating you to act on it, whether that be to share this episode with a loved one or to start taking some steps yourself to get a personal shortfall strengthened, please, I ask of you, act on it. It can and will make all the difference in your life. As a heads up, next week's step is step two, obviously, because it falls after step one, and I have made a fast and forever friend with the man who will be sharing his life in step two. It was seriously life-changing for me, and I know it can be for you when you listen and apply. Now, real quick, as I mentioned at the beginning, I am not going to do sponsors at the beginning of the show, but I'm going to talk about it here at the end. So go check us out on Facebook and Instagram at at JTL Podcast. Check us out online at www.jtlpod.com. Drop us a note there or at uh, the JTL Podcast at gmail.com. Visit our sponsors who I purposely did not bring up at the beginning of this episode or any other for the next 12 weeks, but they are helping this podcast continue forward. They are www.alifeuntold.com www.shepherdbrackets.com and www.radfordpineshomedecor.com Use promo code Justin with A Life Untold to save 10% and JTLpod5 at Shepherd Brackets and Radford Pines to save some money, 5% on those orders. Now, have a great week. Have a fantastic 2020 and press forward one day at a time. Mm-hmm.